Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Peter Navarro. He was professor of economics and public policy at UC Irvine before serving as an assistant to the president and director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing and Policy at the White House during the Trump administration. He has a book just out entitled In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. I wonder how many people in our audience will recognize the echo of Daniel Defoe in that title. Anyway, welcome Dr. <laughs> Navarro. Yes, now an English professor would would catch my little homage there. Uh, and it, it's an homage, I mean, the homage is throughout the book, whether it's Defoe or Perry Mason or anything in between, but <laughs> it, importantly, uh, the subtitle reflects the fact that I kept a daily journal. Yeah. Um, at the White House. So the book is based not on memory, but rather the, the actual written down. And I, I'm, as the In Trump Time book describes, I'm one of only three senior White House officials who was with the president all the way from the 2016 campaign to the end. And uh, early in 2017, uh, when I got to the White House, I was astonished that I was having to fight as many people inside the perimeter as outside when it came to the transformative aspects of the Trump agenda on trade policy and borders. Yeah. And so that's when I began keeping the journal. I wanted to have an accurate historical account, but also hold people accountable. And the, tr the title itself is kind of fun. Um, it's, a, it's a double entendre. Uh, in Trump time is a, is, a, is a phrase I coined again early in the administration when I was sitting around with a bunch of bureaucrats who were dragging their heels on, on a, a, a key policy, and I went, no, 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 no. We're getting this done in Trump time, mm -hmm. which is to say as soon as possible. And that became kind of my signature. But in Trump time also means America in the age of Trump and Trumpism. So right. there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on in the title. Well, and you, you include many direct quotes from your journal throughout the book so that we are getting yeah, the immediate reaction. And first, let me ask a biographical question. Uh, you were, as you said, uh, an insider in the Trump project for longer than just about anybody. How did you get involved in the campaign and then in the administration? It, it, it goes back uh, to uh, my macroeconomics teaching at Irvine, at UC Irvine, back in... Uh, circa 2001, uh, which was the year that China joined the World Trade Organization. And I was teaching macro at the time to fully employed business graduate students in a vibrant Orange County economy. And I noticed uh, over the next several years that people were losing their jobs. And it was like, you know, how, what's going on with that? 
and and all roads, of course, led to the uh, the unfair trade practices of China. Something I would immortalize in the interim time book is the seven deadly sins. You know, things like cyber theft and intellectual property theft, mm-hmm. cyber hacking, and so um, out of that research came a, a trilogy of books: the Coming China Wars in 2006. Death by China in 2011, and then Crouching Tiger, which focused on the military issues. Mm-hmm. So the 2006 book um, was significant for two, th- two reasons. One, I actually predicted way back then that China would create a viral pandemic that would kill millions. And so my, my background research there was very helpful to me when I saw this thing coming from Wuhan. Mm-hmm. But to your question, President Trump um, actually... Uh, was asked in 2011 what his favorite books on China were, uh, were and he said uh, The Coming China Wars was on his top ten list. And so I began corresponding with him through his executive assistant, Rona Graff, when he um, declared for uh, his candidacy. I sent him a note, hey, whatever you need. And um, I started doing a lot of things just from, from uh, Orange County, California, uh, but... I went there for what was supposed to be two days uh, in September and then pretty much never left. Yeah. Now, would you say that, well, first of all, Donald Trump was the one who put China on, on people's radar as, as a problem more than any other national politician? We didn't hear anything about China in the 2012 presidential campaign, did we? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, my Death by China film debuted uh, in, in the, uh, several months before that November 2012 election. And I was out stumping in Ohio, um, in Michigan, trying to get uh, the pres- uh, attention by Obama and Romney. And Romney actually made a run at making it an issue. And then he made his famous 49% uh, a quote behind closed doors, yeah. and Obama was able to tear him up. So that was a huge missed opportunity. I mean, Romney could have won if he had campaigned in the battleground states in the Rust Belt like Trump did. Um, so, but, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Trump is the one, was the one who elevated China's economic aggression uh, to. Uh, a political hot button item that that could win elections. And when he get in, look, he, he uh, this book in Trump time has has uh, a number of missions. One of them is to put Fauci in jail, and there's a lot of reasons why I talk about it in the in Trump time book. But the other is to hold China accountable, um, not just for the pandemic, but for the its ongoing economic aggression and militarization and if you saw you saw the uh, at the beginning of the trump administration to the end you saw a dramatic rise in public opinion polls attitudes towards communist china clearly moving in trump's direction indicating his leadership um on that issue is is it is it correct that your books your writings on on china were the most formative element in President Trump's or candidate Trump's conception of, of the China problem? I, I'm not going to claim credit for that. Uh, the boss and I, it's kind 
kind of interesting. He, he said to me one time in the Oval, it's like, it's like I said something. He goes, that, wow, that's scary. It's like you're in my head. It's like mm. we, we thought about the problem the same way, but he came at it from a business standpoint, and I came at it from an economist and professor's point of view. So, you know, he was talking back in the 80s about Japan as a mercantilist and predatory nation. So it was yeah. a natural, you know, when he started talking about China. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm never getting ahead of the boss on that. But I, I will say that if you look at my trilogy of China books, they are prescient um, on uh, the virus front, on the economic front, and on the military front. I mean, yeah. if you look at people had their, their uh, wringing their hands a couple of weeks ago when China circled the globe uh, with a hypersonic vehicle uh, capable of nu- nuclear weapons delivery uh, in low orbit. And uh, it was like, oh, wow, they can do that. Well, like I said they could do that in 2015. So what frustrates me and why this in Trump time book has to do better than my previous books is what frustrates me is that I put all this stuff out there and it is for all the world to see. And yet, yet we're, we, we don't learn our lessons and the lessons of the in Trump time book is that, that China has attacked us with a bioweapon courtesy of Tony Fauci's gain of function technology and taxpayer funds. And they have basically uh, improve their position relative to the U.S. in economic, geopolitical, and military terms. And they seem to be turning us into them when it comes to authoritarian measures. I mean, with this, this whole lockdown, universal vax policy uh, is really a page taken right out of the Beijing playbook. It's a hammer. It's coming down on everyone. Uh, now, you, you open actually with a pretty high moment, a pretty high time in the Trump tenure, January of 2020, before the pandemic hit. Things are looking good. The, the, the economy is doing well. Unemployment is way down. We've gotten some manufacturing jobs back. But you find this a disappointing occasion. We have China there at the White House and there's a news conference. What is going on there? So that's chapter one of In Trump Time. I call it the Red Wedding chapter in homage to uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, January 15, 2020, yes, President Trump is literally at the top of his game and his approval rating. This is the high point, the apex of the administration. He's on stage with Vice Premier Leo Ha to sign what, what, what is called uh, derisively the, the skinny deal. Uh, months earlier, China had backed away from a handshake deal on uh, a trade agreement that would have transformed everything, uh, would have dealt with all of the seven deadly sins that they engage in against the American people. Uh, but we got something much less than that. Uh, there's plenty of villains in the In Trump Time book. One of the biggest ones is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, uh, who, who basically is, is the Neville Chamberlain of our time. He was the guy always undercutting our get tough policies. Uh, and then in the audience, you have a couple of Wall Street, uh, jackals. I call them that. That's, that, that's an insult to jackals. Uh, but Larry Fink, uh, and Steve Schwartzman, uh, both of whom arguably should have, uh, registered as foreign lobbyists given all the help they gave. So I'm sitting there. 
and everybody's in a great mood. They're celebrating this and the other thing. I'm sitting there in a cold sweat because I'm the guy who wrote Coming China Wars about China creating a virus that would kill us. I'm the guy who'd been watching the cable traffic from Wuhan. I'm the guy who's watching the satellite photos, the crematoria burning people sometimes alive. And I'm the guy who's talking to folks like Miles Guo and Steve Bannon, Doc Hatfield, all who appear in the book about how this may well be a bioweapon. And I'm sitting there with literally in a cold sweat thinking, looking at these diplomats, it's like, what do they know that they're not telling us? Could they be infected? And if so, why are they sitting right next to the president? And could this be a bioweapon intentionally designed to take down the only president that stood up to them? And, and, and ironically, and I wouldn't find this out until later, one of the guys I would tangle with uh, virtually all the time in the administration, Anthony Fauci, um, he would turn out to be responsible for funding uh, the lab and the research where this uh, virus uh, almost certainly came from. So that's 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 the beginning of in Trump time. Bannon always told us, Steve Bannon says, show them, don't tell them. So I try to write it kind of Shakespearean, operatic, Wagnerian, and off we go. I have to compliment you on your prose style. It is lively. It has verve. It is it is a great read. And there were times, yes, when when I when I laughed out loud. At, uh, at the turns of phrase uh, that you that you offer. Let me, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the, the pandemic and Fauci, but let me ask you a question. You refer to a lot of the people in the administration and in, in the swamp as, quote, Wall Street transactionalists and China dove appeasers. How did yeah. these people come to call the shots on U.S. trade policy and foreign policy? How's this happened? Well, let's start with the old Reagan saw personnel as policy, meaning that, that if you put people in an administration uh, that have a certain point of view, that's the policy you're going to get. Okay, and so after four years in the White House, I, I granulate that into bad personnel is bad policy, but also bad politics. So to your question. Uh, this was a surprise win in 2016. The original sin of the administration uh, was to merge with the traditional uh, Republican National Committee to, to help staff the White House. And they came in and literally threw uh, 100 resumes uh, into, the, into the trash can of, of pure MAGA Trump people and were able to gain control of a lot of key positions um, in the administration and, and president Trump would, would, would root them out and realize that he fire, fire many of them as quickly as he could, but not before they would do damage. And, and, um, if I could take one person off the chessboard, uh, and, and guarantee that president Trump would now be sitting in the, uh, oval office, it would be treasury secretary Mnuchin. This guy's a former Goldman Sachs alum, made a bunch of money, in China, uh, got to Goldman Sachs, not because he was smart, because of his daddy, who, who was a kingpin there. And he came in, and he was one of these guys who, uh, it's, it's kiss up, kick down, uh, sir, yes, sir, in the Oval to the president, goes out the door and does exactly the opposite, back channel all the time. He got there because he helped raise a little money on the campaign trail. 
he everybody he seemed to think he was harmless, and he wound up being being a neutron bomb in the administration. And then the two National Economic Council directors, uh, Gary Cohn and uh, and Larry Kudlow. Uh, I mean, I just was it was mortal combat with both of them on trade policy and and how they got there. I'm still trying to figure that one out. But Kushner had a lot to do uh, with that. Jared, um, the son-in-law. Um, he just insinuated himself into the process, and he uh, he invariably had bad instincts. And so the Wall Street transactionalism was the basic idea that, 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 that China is not an existential threat. We don't have to worry about the broader issue. Let's just get what we can out of them. So these trade deals uh, reflected that, and, and um, it, it was very difficult for Lighthizer and I to fight them, and eventually Lighthizer went went to the middle ground on the skinny deal, and I'm I'm sitting there alone. I can tell you this: a little breaking news for your podcast. Um, if there had been a second term, uh, all of those people would have been gone. The boss was ready to put on uh, 100% tariffs, and uh, and and really take China on. And um, he didn't want to rock the boat before the election, but uh, I thought rocking the boat was exactly what we had to do. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. So leading up to, uh, after the election in, in 2016, and leading up to inauguration, you were, you were involved uh, in, in the campaign and, and afterwards. What then happened to you on inauguration day? Funny story there, and, and by the way, the audio edition of this is, is kind of fun. I, I'm surprised nobody did this before. Uh, I narrate the thing. They asked me to do that. That's not the fun part. But I actually had people who part, who appear in the book, I had them do their dialogue, right? So election night uh, at midnight, I get a call from Steve Bannon. He's doing his radio show off-site. He calls me, and he goes, We've got this. Boom. Hangs up the phone, right? Because it looked like it was a landslide at, at midnight. I go home, go to bed. He calls me at 6 a.m. They stole it. Boom. Hangs up again. And, and so um, it, it was clear to both Steve and I that, that there, was, there, were, there was fraud and election irregularities. But we figured that the Trump campaign itself, Kushner and these guys, Bill Stepien and Justin Clark, would be ready to challenge and, and go about that. They didn't. I waited a couple of weeks, and then, as I talk about in the In Trump Time book, Thanksgiving Day, I go into the office, no turkey, no football, no problem, just start wading through what was literally thousands of pages of documents and come up with what has become the definitive analysis of election irregularities and fraud. And it's not just – it's just it, the, the, the punchline here – um, it was no silver bullet the Democrats used, but rather death by a thousand election irregularities. So 
Um, the, the, the mission in the interim time book, besides firing and jailing Fauci and, and holding Communist China accountable for the virus, is to get to the bottom, not just what happened on November 3rd, but also on January 6th um, with the violence on Capitol Hill and how that derailed our plans we call the Green Bay Sweep um, to basically uh, keep keep holding the White House. Yeah. Pence, yeah. by the way, uh, plays a, a pretty good version of uh, Etu Brute in that uh, last chapter 21 in betraying the president. Yeah. Well, but, but let me go back. I, I, I wasn't clear uh, because I, I do want to get to the 2020 election. Uh, one thing about the book is you talk about specific meetings. You recorded, I mean, you wrote, wrote it down very quickly afterwards, exactly what people said, who was there in the room. It's a remarkable window into the inner workings of the Trump administration yeah. that you put together. But I, I was going back to the 2016 election when President Trump won and you're coming toward election day. He gives that election, inauguration day, sorry, not election day, inauguration day, he gives the speech and you think that you're going to be uh, a significant, play a significant role right inside the White House as a direct advisor to President Trump. But you find that, no, we've got Reince Priebus who've come in and, and others. Uh, what, where were you then after the inauguration? Yeah. When the, yeah. when the administration, what, what happened yeah. actually on Inauguration Day? Yeah. You talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I go in. Uh, I go in to report for duty um, in the White House, and I had been promised uh, the position of assistant to the president, which is the highest ranking rank in the White House. It entitles you to direct access to the president, as well as uh, participation in the senior staff meetings. All of that. I go in, and I found. Uh, I find myself having been uh, demoted <laughs> without an office, wandering around like the Flying Dutchman. Um, and that was that was the beginning of, of a very difficult period of time, not just for me, but for the president, because uh, Mnuchin at Treasury, Gary Cohn at the National Economic Council, uh, Priebus um, as the chief of staff, um, and others, McGahn is at, at, uh, as the uh, White House legal counsel. These folks were all um, anti-Trump when it came to the uh, transformative parts of the agenda, the border and the trade policies. Yeah. And I had a big target on my back. Bannon had an even bigger target on his. Um, Kushner was a problem as well, I, I should point out. And so Steve lasted about six months. And what I did was... Um, I just I just buried deep in and, and mastered process and figured out a way to uh, uh, get things done through executive orders. That became my specialty. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, as the Chinese say, hide your capabilities and bide your time. And when the time came, it was when the boss got frustrated with what was going on, he's in the Oval, and he screams out, where's my Peter, right? I get a call, come over to the Oval, I walk in there, and he's sitting around with everybody but me, you know, the Cone and Priebus and all these people, Kushner, and um, 
I immediately uh, get into it with Gary Cohn, and I just level with the president and tell him, you know, these these guys sitting in this room, these are the guys that are, are holding everything up. You want to get stuff done? I, I know how to do it. Let's get it done. And and that was the break there. I, I still had to spend years fighting these people. Yeah. But they weren't they weren't stopping us anymore. We and we got moving. We got steel. When we well, did the steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, that was so much fun because Gary Cohn quit like in in frustration. And it was like, oh, good riddance. Good riddance. Um, but but yeah, but there was just there was a lot of. I mean, look, President Trump. At the end of the day, I think he's the greatest president we've had. He accomplished a lot, uh, but he did it in spite of of a lot of his staff. And if those people hadn't been there, we would have even had a better better record. Well, well, this this was a question that I kept having as I was reading your account. Why did President Trump accept so many people who opposed his economic nationalism agenda into the upper reaches of administration, not not the low level of the swamp, yeah. but way up there into the White House. I mean, I mean, was this? Is it just that Trump had no had no machine, he had no network, he had to get people in there quickly? I, he look. I, I blame a lot of this uh, on Kushner. Uh, Kushner was the guy who was who was doing the vetting um, of of the hirees and stuff like that. And they, there was a great uh, um, personnel guy uh, in the transition team, Martin Silverstein, I think was his name. And he did a great job lining up all sorts of people to fill the government. But there was a coup when Priebus came in. He they, they took everything Martin did and threw it in the trash can. And um, it just, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> sometimes I wonder like how that, how that happened. You know, Mnuchin, Gary Cohn, Larry Kudlow. I mean, these people, Mick Mulvaney, I mean, Mulvaney was a friggin' disaster as a chief of staff. Um, Cause he just wouldn't buy into the buy American, hire American thing, which is the most important thing. He, he's like, the libertarian, I got nothing against libertarians, but they don't support like buy American policies. So he's sitting over at OMB. Everything I'm trying to do, he and his uh, Kathy Cranick. Uh, there's all these, I mean, all these moles in the bureaucracy. They know how to, they know how to get you. So I was persistent. And I, I, I think the, one of the, some of the best, best times for the boss were rebuilding shipyards in places like Philly and Marinette, Wisconsin, and the Panhandle, of Florida. We got like 12 executive orders signed by Mary, but there were a couple of things as I talked about in the M. Trump time book. I had a great executive order to hold China accountable for the virus. I couldn't get that through. I blame Meadows for that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, there it is. It's all in the book. I, I, what's, it's important for history that people understand kind of how the system works and sometimes doesn't and what actually happened. Because I can tell you, all that crap that's out there from people like Woodward, uh, that's just crap. Two anonymous sources do not equal a fact. <laughs> There's much, much more to talk about. We're out of time for this one. But I'm actually hoping, Professor Navarro, that we can do a part two. The book is In Trump Time, A Journal of America's Plague Year. Uh, Professor Navarro, thank you for joining us. All right, my friend. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. 
Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 